Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. And we're back. Woody Overton. Back in the saddle. Back in effect. Back in effect. (laughs) And we're we're bringing y'all a hell of a story today. Highly requested. A legend. Legend, someone you have some experience with. I do. I do. I have a lot of years of experience with him. I... Solid dude. Uh, they can say whatever they want to. Anybody, you know, everybody's going to have their haters or whatever. And um, I, certainly he marches to the beat of a different drummer, but he's a visionary and has affected so many lives. Boy, he sure has. And I'll tell you, uh, as far as research, I've probably enjoyed researching this man more than just about anyone I've researched. Yeah, I've read his book years ago when it came out. Uh, um, of course, I have a, you know the family history at Angola and all that, and of course my personal history with with him. Um, just super, super uh, intelligent, super um, unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. very. I, I think that's a great word right. to describe him, and of course. If you're if you're hanging by a thread right now trying to figure out who we're talking about, it is the legendary warden of Angola, Burl Kane. Burl Kane. So we're gonna start off and we're just gonna kind of take you through a journey of his life. Yeah. And and I think it's so important what you this research that you put together, a lot of it I didn't know, especially about the early years. Uh uh and I don't know how they haven't made a movie about him yet. Honestly, it's, it's that it's, it's got to be good. coming at some and point. So, y'all, this is going to be even more. This we've done a couple series before. We're not we're long ones or anything, but yeah. uh, it's it's going to be several parts of this. But you got to stay tuned because every one of them is going to kick you. Yeah. So, to start off, he was born in Pitkin, Louisiana, and Pitkin, I was not familiar Pitkin, with Pitkin, small town in Vernon Parish. Right. Vernon Parish. And for those of you that are kind of wondering where Vernon Parish is, right. that's uh, on the Texas line. It's kind of in the center of the state all the way right. to the westernmost. Right. If you're familiar with Toledo Bend, uh, uh, yeah. the largest lake, and kind of splits Louisiana and Texas too, but uh, the, you know, fantastic for fishing and all that. It's real close to that. Kind of a piney woods area, but really, really rural. Yeah. And, and I mean, like – Shit, there's not even any major highways to get over there. It's not it, from off the Interstate 49, which runs north and south, splits the state. It's shit. It's probably hour and a half, two hours from there. Yeah, and he actually described it in an interview one time, and he said we didn't even have a stoplight. No, uh, uh-uh. well, my hometown still doesn't have a stoplight. <laughs> <laughs> so you think about that, folks. This is, uh, you know, he went from that to uh, warden of the l- largest maximum security prison in the United States, uh, which, first of all, goes to show you that it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, hard work. And right. and really, Dustin, I think he was kind of touched by God to do right. what he does. Right. Uh, he's he's eighty years old as yep. of as of today. Yep. So he was he is uh, a couple years younger than my dad. Born uh, 
my dad was actually maybe one year because my dad was born the week before Pearl Harbor, and he was born on July second, nineteen forty-two, uh, and so. It's when still going. Born. Yeah, it's still going. Very, very yeah, healthy. Very, we're going to get into uh, that. But he grew up on a farm, y'all, and and that's where he developed his work ethic. And let me tell you something. This dude can work. Let me tell you, if you're 80 years old, look, if I make 80, I'm, I'm going to yeah, consider that, should, that right? a success, right? Yeah. So when you're 80 and you're still working, that, that tells you uh, who he is as far as his work ethic is concerned. He grew up on a farm. Right. Uh, that would play a huge role, huge role in what, you know, his future development. Uh, but, and he grew up in a very religious house. Right. And when back then, it's I'm not knocking it, but a lot of people, especially ones that uh, were raised on farms, their parents had them to raise them as, as help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they worked. That's right. Uh, you needed and, help. You had another you know, kid. We're talking about throwing hay, tending animals, and, and cows, and and everything else, and uh, working the gardens. And hey, there wasn't any playstations and and cable TV or anything. Like, hell, they lucky they had electricity. Oh, and you woke up, you, you know, four thirty in the morning yep. to milk them cows yep. and do all those things. You and, didn't have a problem going to bed at dark because nah, your ass was tired. You yeah, were tired. Right. And, and his, his household was very religious, yeah, y'all, extremely nice. religious. He attended church, uh, as he described it, every time the doors were open since birth. Yeah. And he didn't even uh, dance. He wasn't yeah, allowed yeah. to dance yep. or attend dances. And, and, and I had a lot of um, people that I grew up with that were, were the same way. And, and that just wasn't acceptable. Yeah, so yeah. you want to talk about Bible Belt? That's one of the only – and I, I can't say – Vernon is uh, directly, but I, I know there's some can- not counties uh, parishes over there that are actually dry. Yeah, and, I mean no, they don't sell alcohol. Yeah, that's I mean they're Bible Belt. So we have down here we're South Louisiana where kind of everything goes, and then you hit that that area of the state where it's kind of a borderline uh, to the west of Alexandria and all that. And they really, really country. And then the further north you go, the more country you get. And there's there's a couple dry parishes in uh, in the state, and that, this area would have been one of them, no doubt. And and at his age, you know, being born in '42, he was kind of hitting those late teenage years when Elvis Presley absolutely was big. Absolutely. So I, I I'd love to sit him down and ask him, yeah. how did you avoid not yeah, dancing right. when Elvis Presley well, came on the radio? Didn't have a radio. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. He probably that's probably exactly what he would right. say. I was out there milking cows. I wasn't worried about the king. Right. Uh, so, also, Burl Kane never dreamed he would be a prison warden growing up. Of course, being from such a small town, that would be uh, that'd be like you know most people dreaming they were going to be an astronaut. Right, right. Uh, it just didn't seem possible. Uh, as a matter of fact, he remembers vividly fearing Angola as it was common for his mother to tell him, you know, if you don't straighten up, you're going to end up in Angola. Yeah. It was a threat right, back right. then. And one thing they did even back then, believe it or not, is that most schools once a year sent a certain age group of kids. They bust them to Angola. Yeah. And, uh, of course, it was educational for them. And then – they, you know, they didn't hold back. They took you down the walks and stuff like that, and they fed you the prison food. And they were like, mm, most, most of them, you know, the girls would be crying and shit like that. <laughs> and then they're like, I, I ain't never coming to this motherfucker. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it was, it was, right. it was used as a form of threat. And uh, so he had another dream, and believe it or not, y'all, he wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah, wanted to be a vet. And uh, when he graduated from high school, he went to. LSU Alexandria campus. Y'all, it's a satellite campus, and they have one in Alexandria and one in Shreveport um, to do just that. And, and But he, he struggled coming from a small town where the chemistry, uh, chemistry side of school, you know, basically was a fight for him, and, and they just didn't teach a whole lot beyond the basics, like, the, the, the you know, the element charts and stuff like that at his high school. So he switched – to something that was more prevalent in the areas from, and, that, and that's agriculture education. And let me tell you something: vet school is tough. You might yeah. as well go and become a doctor, right? And and, and nowadays you you got to have a four point whatever just to get in, and there's no guarantee you're going to make it. And it's heavy, heavy on sciences. You know, a lot of people don't realize LSU has 
probably the best one, vet school, if not one, one of the, one of the one best, best in the country. The yeah, man. And yeah. the uh, so th- imagine this coming from probably you know my hometown. I graduated. We had twenty eight in my graduating class. Right, still didn't have a, a red light to this day. Yeah. This I, I submit to you that his town was smaller, but there and back then they didn't test. To, for the kids to pass the test, you just got the books. You, you know, I mean, you know, Jim. Oh, yeah. And, and it was a different type of education, and they were just giving you your basics. But the ag part, I mean, grow, growing up on a farm, he already knew tons about it, right? And, yeah. and pretty much everyone in his family were teachers. So um, he spent it. He settled on basically just working towards a life of teaching after college. Yeah. Which I, th- I think is – very unique uh now that i know him you know right you look back on that life and you see how those those skills right you know benefited him even though he wasn't in the world of education when he really got going uh so he graduates from lsu in in agriculture education he starts teaching at a high school right and he, he figures out in about three months' time that yeah. teaching's not easy. Not at the high uh, school level. Yeah, yeah, not at the high school yeah. level. And and uh, so he figured this ain't for me. He lasted about three months, and he went to work for the state of Louisiana uh, at what's known as the Louisiana Farm Bureau. Yeah, and that, and that's Louisiana has, a, or of course, our number one. Uh, industry is, is oil and gas. Then you have, uh, and it's kind of a toss up between the two, but then you have seafood, uh, um, and then it's agriculture. Right? Yeah. And the seafood and agriculture are kind of on the same level. And like where I'm from, it's it's all farms, and or we raise trees. Yeah. Uh, and so agriculture, y'all, is, is beyond just raising cows. It's, you know, growing trees. It's, it's everything, um, uh, that you can profit from in the long run by growing it or raising it. That's right. And he, he was kind of a master of that having grown up in it and then got a, you know, official education in it. And in 1976, 76, I was six years old. And I was two. Yeah. Right. <laughs> in 1976, he finally starts his career in state government. Yeah. And he started out with the Louisiana department of corrections as the assistant secretary for agribusiness. And that's, that's huge. The, uh, now I'm going to be honest with you. And this is just a straight up truth. And uh, it's how I got my state government job. My first one with the department of corrections. Actually, when I was in high school, I got a job. One of the local state reps got me a job cutting grass at the the old folks home the state run old folks home yeah. and the villa um so when he gets this job with the state there's a lot of things that go along with that and one of them is and that i have some <laughs> personal knowledge about this i'll tell y'all probably on the next episode one of them is you your civil service yeah and, and there's a lot of protections afforded to you through the civil service, and you get your guaranteed raises. Uh, you're never going to get rich, uh, the but you you have a protection. There's a certain comfort level of that, and, and yeah, they never, can't just fire you, right? No. So, well, real quick, they said being a, when I left the sheriff's office to go to state police, they were like, "Why would you?" No, when I left the university PD, we were civil service, to go to the sheriff's office. And they were like, why would you leave a civil service job to go somewhere where you're an at-will employee? I said, well, I don't need civil service to save my job. Right. Right. And, and But civil service, and this is the truth, the, the, this is how much protection you have. If, if I was state police and I walked into my captain's office and I got on his desk and I took a shit on his desk, the first time, all they can do is give you a verbal warning. The second time, you, I, I go in and I take a shit on this desk. Then they can write you up for it. And the third time, they can fire you. Wow. There's only certain offenses like you know drugs or, or whatever that they can fire you for on the spot. Did you ever take a shit on his desk? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't have a captain either. I answered to the to the uh, to the colonel. But the, I mean, just, just an example, and they say it's like the snark missile. And for you who don't remember during the Iraq War. Um, Saddam had these missiles called snarks, and and the the every time they you know they were developed them every time they fire them the fuckers blow up right yeah and so they said 
civil service employee is like a snark missile. You can't fire and you can't make it work. <laughs> but that's not true. The best, a lot of the best mm. people in the world are, are, are lifetime state employees, and a lot of my dear friends are. Absolutely. And look, y'all, this is 1976. So the right. the economy is is down at this point in time. That was a really good job. And of course, look. Any any sort of state job at that level, sometimes you got to know somebody. Will that's you ever absolutely and true. It, that ain't changed. That's been that way since the it's beginning of the time. Way it is in Louisiana. That's yeah, right. I, mean, I, I, I got my job at the Department of Corrections because my my dad pulled some strings with a politician. Sure, I mean, and and that was a good job, and this right. was a, a downtime in the economy. So. Burl freely admits, and he said this on many interviews, that his brother was instrumental in getting him that job. His brother, y'all, and whether you're aware of this or not, was a senator from the state of Louisiana. They look almost identical. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm surprised that they're not twins. Yeah. So he he starts that job, and y'all, he's he's a rock star at it. He's doing great. And in 1981, he gets an opportunity. Ten years before I went there. Yeah. In 1981, um, he became the warden of Dixon Correctional Institute, known as DCI. And he was only 30. Only 38. So when I met him, when I met him, uh, it was in 90 or 91. And, of course, he had been the warden for 10 years. DCI, y'all, is is, um, a mixed security prison. And this is kind of – a misnomer here too, but mixed security meaning it has medium, maximum, and some trustee camps. The trustee camps would be like at the so Jackson, Louisiana is full of state run facilities. The villa, like I was telling you about, yep. the geriatric home, uh, um, state run. Um, the hospital for the mentally insane, which is basically on DCI property right across the street from the cow barn. And it has the the mental hospital, uh, uh, state run mental hospital. If you if you don't have health care and you legitimately to be, I'd say crazy. What do they call, what's the politically, politically correct term? Nuts. But, yeah, right? <laughs> if you're literally nuts. You went there, and yeah. and I look. I had an aunt who who spent most of her life in in, the, in that hospital. But the, uh, uh, then you have DCI. It's all these state run. Uh, the the war vets home is there. The biggest state state war vets home is there. So you have all these state run facilities, and I guarantee you, all my people from Jackson. I got family from there. All of them were state employees at yeah. one facility or another. So DCI is located right outside of Jackson, y'all. And which is about 40 minutes north of Baton Rouge, a small town t- still to this day, uh, uh, one major road running through it. And then DCI is off of one of those roads. But the mixed security, the main camp at DCI where I worked, that you have the two maximum security camps, and the, uh, then they had like the satellite, the trustee camp at the state mental hospital, and that's because they took care of everything there. They yeah. were orderlies and took care of the grounds and the whole nine yards. And I used to go to football practice, a little peewee football practice on the state grounds. Oh, come and on. There, and the, the prisoners would line up on the fence, all the trustees. And I, I, years later, I would, on extra duty shifts, I would go pick up and I'd go be the guard at the trustee camp there. Yeah. But they do that so for economic reasons. And Burl had them do that for economic reasons because they didn't have to bust them back and forth to work every day. Wow. And so they were there around the clock. And they uh, were instrumental in all the, the state-run facilities. The 100%. trustees, the cow barns and everything I'm talking about. Look, DCI, it wasn't 18,000 acres, but it was a lot. Yeah. But spread out in different areas. And, and the the cow barns and, and all that shit, they, they raised cattle. Yeah. And, and, and for the state of Louisiana. Uh, the uh, So, but anyway, the it was their burl uh, – and 38 I, years old. I, I, yeah, I didn't know that. When, Dude, when I was I started, 38, there's no way yeah, I'm no, running a prison. I'm uh, lucky to stay out right, of prison. Right. You're right. And, uh, <laughs> I was in Texas still when I was 38. but Yeah, really am- amazing and a, and a huge opportunity. And guess what? It was his first. 
his first experience as being a warden, what what he would become uh, just an absolute legend for. At that time, DCI had about 1,400 inmates. That was its capacity, and it was female and male, right. which, uh, which made it different from other prisons. It was also relatively new. It had been built in 1976. Right. So right. it was only six years old. Right. That's like the you know state of the art right. prisons, compa- especially compared to Angola right. at that time, which right. was hundred. No matter the time old. I got there in ninety one, there were there were no females there. Um, it was it was probably like twenty five hundred they had added on to it. Yeah. Um, so no females least, at that time. Uh, gotcha. And, and and then the the other kicker is, and I forgot to mention this earlier. So I say it's about forty minutes north of Baton Rouge. Well, guess what? It's only. 30 miles from bloody Angola. Blood, yeah. And so, so I was, it's East and West Feliciana. I was born and raised in Clinton where my grandfather was a judge, but West Feliciana butts up to it. And my mama was from, from West Feliciana where her daddy was the DA during this time, actually. The, uh, and so, but when that, that 30 miles is deceiving, because back then they had the old road to yeah. bloody Angola, and that wound up the Tunica Hills, and part of it was gravel and shit. And it took, when you turn off of 61, it took you another 40 minutes to get from there, that last 10 miles to get to Angola. Oh, it seemed like yeah. 300 miles. Right, right. Yeah, it was not what you would call picturesque. You're not looking at the Rockies when no, you're going no, down, the, right. down the highway. So, uh, y- you know, this is where... Uh, Kane coined one of his what would eventually be one of his most famous uh, phrases. He, he started at the at the facility, and as is common, your first day on the job as warden, you're going to have a meeting with right. all of your people, and you're going to learn uh, the ins and outs of this prison, things that maybe the outgoing warden didn't tell you. Right. And one of the things he found out was uh, that they had no worship services for the inmates, and it was where he kind of coined the phrase moral yep. rehabilitation. And he carried that. Oh, we'll, we'll talk day. about it, but he carried, he still carries to this day. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and he was serious about it. Yeah. And it was one of the, as a matter of fact, one of the first things he changed at Dixon, right. Uh, was bringing religion into prisons. Right. Something that, uh, that look, we're going to talk a lot about. So he becomes, a rock star again. He's yeah. just killing it at Dixon. But, but, and then let me tell you just a couple real quick stories. And, and uh, I know I'm going off script, but no, the, I, I met him the first time. And I think it was 1990, 90 or 91. And I got hired. At, uh, so he had what they call the White House, right? Mm-hmm. And the White House was the administrative building. Um, I didn't mean I had to go to the White House, do paperwork and stuff like that. And, and, uh, but he, I hadn't seen him. And then they put me on the largest rec room after I got back from Angola doing my training and all that. They put me on the largest rec room at DCI. Yeah. And I ended up, long story short, I ended up getting in a fight with an inmate because the captain told me, you, you give them direct orders like, hey, do this. And if they don't do it, you can arrest them for it. Yeah. And so one of them I told, to come with me and he turned around and ran out in the yard and I had to hit my pager and get the captain to come and the captain went out there and got him and arrested him. He said, but next time you do it, you hit your pager and you use whatever force necessary to bring the situation under control. Well, <laughs> it wasn't two weeks later, Sunday night, they they turned off the lights in the dorm and I told him to clear the rec room except for uh, the night guys that were up. And one guy was standing on the back wall and by the water fountain with his foot up on the wall and you know, we say catch your house, and and I told him to catch your house, and he, and he just kind of looked at me. I said, "I'm not going to tell you again, that catch your house," and and he didn't move, and so I hit my uh, pager, and I said, "Well, you're under arrest. You're coming with me." He said, "Fuck you," and he turned around, and walked into the dorm, which was closing down at that time. And the lights and the inmates are shuffling back and forth, getting the water, going to the bathroom, and I tackled him, and the fist fight was on. Mm. So. The, the Captain Raymond Newman said, he said, man, when I hit that rec room door and I was a long ways away from it, he said, and I didn't see you. He said, I knew you should have turned to shit. He said, I knew shit was going down. And, and what happened was that there's a couple fireable offenses. One, if you get caught having sex with an inmate or you get caught bringing in contraband and, and or sleeping on duty, uh, civil service doesn't protect you for that. I and mean, the biggest one is if, if another officer is in a fight 
and you don't help them, then you can be fired on the spot. Well, there's two sergeants on the dorm. I'm fighting with this guy. I didn't think I could start a riot, right? Right. And I'm fighting with this guy, and he's a big dude. And uh, one of the death sergeants trying to help me. The other one's like froze up, didn't Uh-oh. want to do anything. And then we came in, and long story, so we get him out. And I mean, we've been, uh, we were punching, we were throwing, uh, you know, punching my eye was swollen and stuff. And uh, so, and long story short, Ray gets me to the office. He said, he said, Ray, you got to go home. I'm like, fucking getting fired, man. I said, bro, you told me use whatever force necessary. And I said that he wouldn't stop and put my hands on him and he went to fight. And he said, yeah, but he said, you could have started a fucking riot, man. And he said, you realize that? You said, you got to go home and, and we'll call you. I'm like, fuck, I'm getting fired. And um, so they called me on uh, Monday morning and he said, uh, you need to report to Warden Kane's office. Oh, <laughs> shit. And I'm like, my first time in the life on the carpet besides the military, right? Being on, called on the carpet means you know you're going to get your ass chewed or get fired or whatever. And he brought me in, and I'll never forget him. Um, he actually got up from behind his desk and he shook my hand. Yeah. And he said, Sergeant, over to come on in. And he, and he said, have a seat. He said, boy, tell me tell me what happened. <laughs> I, said, I said, Mr. Warden Kane. Yeah, Captain Newman, and then he was in there. I wasn't trying to throw him on the bus. I said, this is what happened before. He told me next time, use whatever force necessary to bring the situation under control. And and so I did. And I said, we ended up fighting. He said, kind of leaned back and steeped his fingers a little bit, kind of like Carney Foster would. And, and, and Morgan Kane is a – he's not big in stature. He's not yeah. tall, um, but he's not fat. But, but he's kind of um, – I don't want to say heavy set, but he's, he's kind of more of a rounded shape. You just you wouldn't, you know, think this guy has such a presence, right? But he does, but he was just super, super nice. And he said, he said, all right, he said, all right, son, I get that. And he said, I appreciate you taking the initiative. He said, but I'm gonna send you somewhere where you could fight every single night. And 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 he said, I said, well, where's that? He said, I'm gonna send you to the work and sell block. And he said, mm-hmm. that's where. That we have our worst of our worst, and somebody's going to be an act. He'd say, you know what? He would curse sometimes. Say as rigid, religious as he was, and he probably did say ass. Um, when, when he got mad, he'd curse. But he said, "I'm going to send you back there." And I believe me, and this I pass this down to the, all the guys I trained over the years. I, I would tell them, I say, "Look, you don't have to go out of your way. Put your hands on somebody to look for shit because." There's enough assholes out there that are legitimately going to give you a reason to fight them. Right? Yeah. When you go to rest them or whatever, and he said, "I'm going to put you back there," and I did it. And I rose up and and I was a superstar. And every time he'd see me, he'd say, "How you doing, Sergeant Overton?" And love that story. And you, I'm sure you've got several. And what we're going to do, folks, is this is going to be a docu series. So this right. is going to be three episodes. In the third episode, we're going to have Kelly Jennings, who also has right. some experience. Uh, with Burl Kane on the show, and it's going to be storytelling time with Woody and Kelly, right, right. There you go. and they're going to tell some fire. stories that are just we fire. Need to promote that, yeah. And the last episode is going to be the true stories, the true from, stories, from Woody and from Woody. Woody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't get no better than that. And look, right. I got the best seat in the house, and That's, I'm going to be kind of the moderator yeah, of and, of what will be an amazing episode uh, coming up just in a couple of weeks. So. We're going to move on, and look, Warden Kane, he became an absolute uh, star. He made a name for himself, and of course, he had a brother that was in politics, right. and so they knew the Kane name, and in 1995, the Warden of Angola, a guy by the name of John Whitley, who yep. who at some point we're going to do a story on, right. uh, but John Whitley was retiring, and uh so secretary at that time was Richard, Richard Stadler. Stadler. And, and, Stadler. And, and he was uh um uh, he was my he was the head of the Department of Corrections when I was there also. So that secretary, he is kinda like who is the boss of the wardens if he's you, the boss if of you all the prisons. Yeah. So he the is the top of the of outside of the governor, he right. is the top person right. uh in the in the prison system and he announces the new warden will be the warden at that time of DCI, which was Burl Kane. Burl Kane. Now, you may be surprised to know something. Burl Kane did not want that job. Right. <laughs> well, well, yeah, and that's because he knew that wards in Angola didn't last long. That's right. Uh, I think 
Um, they average just over five years of service. Um, you know, because Angola was so bad, y'all, and somebody had to be the scapegoat for the the bad things that happened. But, um, you know, but he wasn't left much of a choice. Doing him, he, he had the most experience of any warden in, uh, in the state of Louisiana with his 14 years at DCI, and so, I mean, he took it. Yeah, and, and Secretary and, Stadler just basically said, "You're going to be the warden right, of Angola," right. and and when he took it. Uh, I tell you that the um, it was it was truly bloody Angola, and they were under all this federal scrutiny and everything else. And and he's like, mm, don't want to do it. I mean, even he, I mean, I'm sure it was a challenge to him, but he mm. didn't want to he didn't want to lose what he had going on. No, you 14 years at one at one place. You right. have a system. Right, it's working. Right, you're you're looked at as a rock star in the in the uh, the system. And now you're being sent another challenge. You're comfortable. You don't want to have to do that. But also, you know, Angola had some issues. There were 300 attacks on the staff uh, and 766 inmate on inmate assaults, half of which were women. That was in that was in one year. Yeah. The year before he went there. And this was uh, right around when I was getting out of corrections. He left right after I left DCI. And it went up there, but fuck, I knew about it. I mean, you you heard about it, the, mm-hmm. and the, I mean, it didn't make the news every day, but it made the the correction officer grapevine. Right? It was bad shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was. I remember when he was announced as the warden of Angola, and if you were from the state of Louisiana, I mean, that was big news. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. big news. Yeah. And and uh, so he, you know, a side note to that, and and uh, this may or may not seem out of order, but I'm going to mention it now. He was actually uh, still living at DCI throughout, you know, they have wardens typically live at the prison they're at. Right. They, they have very nice homes that are provided to him by the state at no cost as part of your salary. Yeah. And it's maintained by the the convicts and and all that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he took the job, but shit, nobody wants to move in, especially back then, wants to move to Angola, not even on the beeline, because it's so fucking far away. Right. And and, and his, his, I knew his wife at the time, and then he was there, and he's got kids and, and the whole nine yards. Well, and you may wonder who took his place at DCI. Well, Jimmy LeBlanc yep. uh, took his place there. They were good friends. and, yep. and well, uh, Jimmy was a, a, an underwarden to Burl uh, um, at the yep. time, and so basically – Burl Kane tapped him to take it over. Right. And he made a deal with him. He said, look, you, you take it over. You're, I think you would be a great replacement for me, but I ain't moving out my house. Yeah, right. <laughs> he literally said that, and, and Jimmy LeBlanc was okay with that. In the, in the state of Louisiana, they gave uh, Jimmy LeBlanc kind of a stipend for like, the home he was already living in. Because cash. that's considered a part. It, it, it it's, it's a it's huge part, part of your salary. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a big part of your salary. Um, and, and y'all, and I'm, I'm sure you have it in here, Jim, that, uh, when Stoller retired, Jim LeBlanc ultimately became yeah. the head of the yeah. Democrats. We'll be getting into yeah. that. Uh, but Kane, just to finish that point up, Kane lived at DCI y'all until 1999. And That's what prompted another, him to actually leave four years, yeah. was the murder of Captain David Knapps in Angola. And we'll get into that in yes. the second episode. Yes. Captain David Knapps was a multi-generational correctional officer, and he lived on the B-line. And, he, he, you know, he just that's all he ever knew. So his father had done it, his grandfather had done it, his brothers and everybody, you know, he, he lived there. And he was brutally murdered um, in 99 during a attempted prison escape and we're gonna and we're gonna cover that yeah and, um he ultimately he's he's a superhero but he burl would have been his boss for almost five years at that time yeah and so. the, the one thing i'm gonna tell you about burl kane is is as any good leader in any good spot if if your people take care of you you damn well gonna take care of your people and you're gonna know who they are and, yeah and you're gonna promote them up and everything because unfortunately and i've said this many times that and i felt this i truly did believe this there were some of the people that you worked with in in corrections were shittier than the convicts 
Yeah. And I think that plays into the whole civil service thing uh, because you can't fire them, you can't make them work, and they knew the rule books and all that. But absolutely, 95% of them were the best people in the world. But Burl knew who who were his rising stars and, and who would run whatever, and David Navis was one of them. And uh, Look, being a good leader, the best one of the best attributes you can have is being able to spot other good leaders. But Burrow might have been the, and I've had so many, and I, I'm telling you, I think he is probably the one of the the best leaders I've ever had. And I'm talking about my military career, my police career, my corrections yeah, career, you've whatever. Yeah, you've been around a lot he, of them. He he absolutely, and I took a lot of his leadership skills from him. And he absolutely. Like that day when I was trouble in his office. I mean, if I'd have been a turd, he'd have fired me, yeah. right? And uh, um, and but no, he he gave me freedom to run, right? And he knew I was going to handle my business. Yeah. yeah. So imagine, you know, uh, you're Burl Kane. It's 1995 February, and you're now in charge of the largest maximum security prison in America, eighteen thousand yeah. acres yeah. of sheer intimidation and, and the worst of the worst and the worst of the so worst I, I would put those guys up there against any convict in the world as far as the the, the horrificness of the crimes etc so warden gets there and one of the first things he did was he outlines his philosophy to the inmates and right. i'm going to quote i'm going to quote him here he said, your dorm is like a city or a community. The beds and houses along that are the street, with the street being the aisle itself. So three beds down is like saying three houses down. Yeah. You should visit your neighbors. I actually say that, yeah. Counsel your neighbors uh, and be concerned for each other. Keep your city free from drugs and violence and don't curse. <laughs> Right. Once you start cursing each other, violence is sure to follow. That was his philosophy. Absolute genius. And do you know that uh, to this day, that's what they call their bunks and stuff is their houses. Yeah. And, and well, and, it essentially and, and their is aisles. Cause it's these big long aisles, y'all that run in between rows of bunks and they call them their streets. That's their streets. Isn't that crazy? It is. I, it, I, I did. I never knew Burl was one that coined that phrase. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story here. Woody and I both, and this is, uh, this is about, you know, when he went to Angola, he had to deal with one thing he didn't have to really deal with at DCI, and that was executions. Yep. Um, I don't care who you are. I don't care how blessed you are uh, to deal with certain things. That's hard for anybody. Right. And and keeping in mind that Burl is, is still had it. I mean, when I knew him, and as far as I know to this day, he's a very strong Christian man. Absolutely. So uh, his first – uh, experience with that was with an inmate by the name of Thomas Ward. And this would play probably, I bet if Burl was sitting across from us and, and Warden Kane, if you'd ever like to sit across yeah, from absolutely. us, we'd love to have you. I've tried to reach out to your guy. Yeah. Um, but if he was sitting across from us, he'd probably say this changed him more than anything else he's ever done. So uh, it was just after midnight, uh, Warden Kane, uh, found himself alone. He was in the death chamber with Thomas Ward. And yeah. without without one word, Woody, he lifts his hand. He gives a thumbs-down signal, which he would later say he hated. He hated doing that. It did not feel right to him. But it was a signal that was common to give to the executioner when you would – this was lethal injection. So when you would issue that lethal dose – uh, he would give that thumbs-down signal. The lethal dose gets administered, and six minutes later, Ward was dead. It was Kane's first execution. Now, immediately, Kane began to regret that signal, as I told you. His uneasiness, it, it started to grow. He felt guilty because he never found out Ward's spiritual condition right. that night or before. Right. He just basically ordered you know, the, the lethal dose to be administered. Uh, Warden Kane actually was quoted as saying he didn't utter a word as we strapped him to the gurney. When the time came to ask him if he had anything to say, he didn't answer. He just choked up. 
The execution took place only three months, y'all, after Kane took over as warden and completely spearheaded the change that we're about to tell you in that prison. Right. So real quick, let's go back to that. So, you know, we've talked about executions before on the show, but now um, in the execution chamber, the warden is the one that's in there, and they have to, you know, read the death warrant. But given that thumbs down, um, you know, he didn't know what he was going to feel. It's the first time he ever basically legally murdered someone, um, and that's it. But I, I know as 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 a Christian man, the like, he's, he just saw somebody be murdered, even though it's legal murder. Yeah, uh, 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 the they just saw the state of Louisiana take. A human being's life and he knows that he's not in there for being a choir boy but as a christian he's he's thinking mm, you know what i should have talked to him and, and, and he, even if he did tell me go to hell i don't believe in jesus i would have done my job as a christian to try to spread the word to give him a chance to call on jesus for, for to repent that's right and you know he had a conversation with his mother woody um after this it bothered him that much right and his mom said you need to do everything you can to get those guys spiritually ready to meet the Lord because you're going to have to answer That's for right. that. Because it, it, you're, God gives me, yeah, me too. The, the, when you have that opportunity, and so very few people do ever have an opportunity to talk to someone that you know is about to die. Yeah. And even, even like I said, even if they reject you, I mean, if you don't take that opportunity, you you have to answer for it. You're going to have to answer for it. And it it bothered him. So he, literally, this is the start, y'all, and we can't tell you how, we can't even dictate into words how huge this is, but this was the start of a change at Angola, like, and not to sound like Donald Trump, but like nothing you've ever seen. (laughs) You know, just unbelievable uh, he started in, instituting what he called, and, and this was another phrase that he coined, cultural change. Yep. Uh, the first thing he did, and and thank God Woody was not working there right, at this time. Right, guys, I've damn sure been in trouble for it. <laughs> he banned cursing by guards and inmates. Now, you can only control that so much, but it was definitely frowned upon. I think that's yeah. why but he banned actually, it. But he, actually, he believed they, that, put, they put it in the rule book after yeah. that, that you can't curse. Yeah, and and he believed that cursing led to other things. It wasn't the curse word itself. Mm-hmm. Now, it's what he said. He said one every now and then, but it was yeah. when it was appropriate. Uh, I said, if I can lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What he's talking about, the, it, 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 and, and I got to interject again. Sure. What he's talking about is, but I would, I would carry this later on. And, and when I talk to the younger guys and say, listen, you, you, most of the time when you're dealing with people, you're dealing with them on their worst day. They're going to be upset. They're going to be screaming. They're going to be cursing. I said, you should start out nice as can be. And, you, and then look, when I was on the street, and unless we were fighting or something, we didn't curse people. Yeah. Uh, Willie Graves would have hung your ass and that, or, or any department I worked for. I uh, said, so you always start out low and treat them uh, super kind. Even if they're cursing you and berating you, start out low because then if you need to jump up and, and escalate, they'll be surprised. Yeah. Right? But, but just, I mean, one person cursing at another one, it's not going to end well usually. That's it's going right. to end, especially between men, and and one of them has never had any respect for authority in their entire life, and they hate you as a correctional officer. That So what is it doing with this just simple thing by taking out curse words or trying to take out curse words? He is making a, um, a mutual level of respect. So you take that off, that 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 gasoline that, that can do no good yeah. right and somebody's gonna feel degraded somebody's gonna be pissed off i say, say fuck you jim chapman you're a dick yeah right where's it going from there that's right but i say Fist I, cuff. if you you tell me to do you know give me a direct rubber water and I, i'm like oh, yes sir then, yeah. Right. Then yeah. I can go write you up. There's other ways to handle it. So that was genius on Brawl's part. It really was. And, and, you know, he also instituted cleanliness. Yes. Uh, and, and like we told you earlier that, you know, he had this conversation with the inmates where he said, this is your house. Right. Keep your house clean. Right. You know, and, well, and encourage of, your neighbors and, to keep their and, house and, clean. And most of them come, Cut from, your grass. come lifestyles that they never had anything clean. 
They yeah. lived in the hoods. They they had right. they they were raised around cursing. They were they had no respect for anything. And yeah. he's he's just trying to give them the base things of of be. I mean, just because you're in prison it doesn't mean you're not living. Yeah. Right. That's right. And he he started inviting kind of the outside world. Look, let me tell y'all real quick. One of the hardest things to do for me in preparation for these shows is research. And why is that? Because we're dealing with a prison where not a lot gets out. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, for, yeah. for obvious reasons. Right. And I get it. Right. Um, but it, it requires an enormous amount of work to dig up some of this stuff right. because it just doesn't get out. He at the beginning was very open with inviting people into the present, mm-hmm. letting them see, look, Barbara Walters, which we'll tell you a story on later, right. uh, came into the present and actually did a, a, uh, I think it was a 2020 special on the, uh, the executions that take place there. So it was a huge thing on that front, but he, uh, his message initially was, we don't have anything to hide and we want to let people in here, uh, see what we're doing to change right, right. what is not that we're in a perfect. horrible situation. Yeah, not that we're perfect by far, but, but we're not hiding anything. Right. Where the culture in the past was shit. You know, loose lips sink ships. It happens at Angola, it dies at Angola. So I know y'all are ready for something here. And that is what was one of the more historic changes that he made right off the bat? Well, we got it for you. Uh, one of the first, maybe one of the most controversial changes that he made, but but this is Burl Kane genius right here. Right. So he's sitting at, I, I'm assuming he's sitting at his desk one morning. This is how I'm picturing it. And he says, uh, we got a problem. Our death row inmates, most of them can't read and they yep. can't write. That's right. It might surprise y'all to know that they didn't offer any sort of education, even as simple as reading and writing uh-huh. to death row inmates. Yeah, they just locked them up. Yeah. So you might you might say to yourself, well who cares? Uh Burl Kane cared. And the reason he cared was not these are these are condemned men. Right. So they're probably not getting out. Although we have done many uh, stories with you guys where people were exonerated right, and didn't exonerated. do it. Right. So there are those situations. But his well, thing was if they can't read and they can't write, especially if they can't read, they can't read the Bible. Right. That was a problem for right. him. He didn't like that. That's exactly right. And right. so it was the first change he made was he said, we're going to offer education to our death row inmates. Right. That's huge. What do you That's huge. And, and, and those but like you said, most of them had never had any kind of education, right? Right. So what do you give? And, and ultimately, y'all, during this time, the, the death penalty would be put on hold and, and stuff like that uh, years later and stuff. But what do you give somebody who's locked up 23 hours a day and, they, and then they're out by themselves? Yeah. I mean, that's where people go crazy. And, I mean, they got nothing to do. They didn't have TVs, they didn't have all the stuff, and then and the uh, so he gives them we say the word hope, and not hope that they're gonna let live, but he gives them something to do besides sit there and rot. That's right. And if you're gonna sit there and rot, maybe if if the Bible's the only book you can read, maybe you glean something from it, and it goes back to what his mama said. You got to give them the opportunity. You got to give them the opportunity. And that's just what he did. It, it was controversial. Look, there were people screaming, why are we spending money to educate, you know, death row inmates? And yes, most of them did horrible things. Um, but his his thought process was, I'm not only in charge of their, you know, the way he felt about it. I'm not only in charge of, of their imprisonment. Um, I'm in charge of their soul. Right. And and this is between me and God and what I am doing to try to help these these men. And that's the way he thought. And the the prison, the prisoners themselves really started to take note. This guy seems like he cares. Right, right. I mean, it was probably an absolute shock to them. Right. Uh, he didn't judge them for what. And I, I got this from his time, too. And he told me this. He said, your job is not to punish them. The job is to keep them safe and keep the public safe from them escaping, et cetera. Yeah. Right? They're, they're doing their time for their crime. Your job yeah. is not to punish you. You treat them like a human being. And 
that nobody had ever done that. Nobody had ever done that. And so he he does another historical thing right after that. And that is he was the first warden to invite. And in this case, it was the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to come in. And uh, and basically they had like a a satellite seminary right there at Angola. And for those of you that don't know what they do, uh, uh, they offer degrees in in uh in the field of seminary so you can become an ordained minister basically it's like a bible college yeah this was genius i cannot i cannot stress enough how genius this was because in his long-term vision and if if anybody can say anything about burrow kane he had vision in his long-term vision he saw inmates changing other inmates through god right and that's what was missing in prisons, in his opinion. Uh, you know, th- that was probably, looking back on it, one of the most successful programs he ever had. Uh, those graduates, they would be allowed to travel not only to other prisons in Louisiana, but eventually all over the country. They were going all over the country speaking to these at these other prisons. And he called that imposing morality. Right. And, and back to it, y'all. The now you get a, a degree from a college, then you have a little bit more self worth, right? And yes. these, these these college studies aren't free; they were funded by outside donations. In Angola, offered the, um, a, a four year college degree in ministry, including instructions in Greek and Hebrew, as well as lessons on how to preach. Yeah, and you know it it really changed the lives of not only the these inmates themselves and gave them self-worth but it enabled them to go out and then work to change others and and if you're doing that and then this gives them the bumps again if you're doing that and 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 you get self-worth for the first time in your life guess what you're not doing you're not raping and killing Yep, inside the prison they were still raping and killing and let me me hit it right on the head look we're going to talk about the, the Christianity and, and God and, and all this uh, stuff a lot during this series. But here's the deal. I don't care what you believe in, um, but and there certainly are convicts at Angola that were like, fuck you, I don't believe in anything. I'm an atheist, whatever. And that's fine, too. But they were given an opportunity because Burl was raised that way. That's right. And he knew that the principles in religion right. were – sound things that would keep people out of trouble. Uh, he also knew Angola was full of the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and and he was trying to shine a little light and make the darkness back up. That's right. So he started thinking about this and looking at the things that were missing from Angola. This became pretty successful. And he knew that, that work was, or learning to work, Right. was critical in rehabilitation. Uh, many of the inmates in Angola, y'all, they had never learned to work. They basically grew up in life. They robbed, they raped, they pillaged, and they murdered to survive. So he instilled what he called meaningful work. Well, yeah, and, and let me tell you this, another famous Burl Kane saying, when you get to prison, he introduced himself, and he said, welcome to the Department of Corrections. You're here for however long you've been sentenced. He said, and we're not here to punish you. We're here to make you secure. He said, but you're sentenced to at hard labor. He said, religion is an option. You'll, you'll have that opportunity while you're here to get religion. He said, but work is not, you're going to work every day and everybody has a job. And that goes back to him teaching the basics. Like I said, most of them never even knew how to work. They weren't raised like, my daddy raised me, your daddy raised you, yeah. and, and with the good work ethic. That's right. And so, it, and it also gave them that pride that they were seeking, uh, obviously, teaching these inmates to work. And he wasn't done yet. And this is probably, um, well, it, it definitely is an, another part of his vision in those early days. And that was he founded a program in Angola called Malachi Dads. Right. He did this with some inmates who came to him. And now, Warden Kane, he took note, y'all, of the fact that almost all convicts on Angola grew up in a broken home with the father typically being absent. 
that is look that's at any prison in the country overall it it is it is not even close it's it's not something we're making up it's an issue people were picking on or whatever it's just the way it is yeah i mean you talking six thousand inmates and most of them were fathers but they came from broken homes and so it didn't take a genius for warden kane to figure out Maybe that's part of the problem. Now, you can't fix the people that are in there. They can't be at home with their kids, right? They're in prison. But this they're, they're program. In for the worst. The worst, the worst of the worst. worst. So they he knew life. that that there's kids out there, and they're now growing up without a father because he's in prison. It, it, well, also, I'm going to interrupt you again. The, there are generational prisoners in there. There yeah. are fathers. And whose sons are grandfathers, who are dads whose sons murdered and grew up because it's the only thing they ever knew, right? They absolutely, and they got sent to Angola, and they they're, they're I'm telling you, there's generational. Their grandson, that the oldest one now, who's an old old timer in Angola, whose son is down now for life for murder. That guy's son would come in for murder. Yeah, I mean, he's he's looking at this and he's like. It's a Man. pattern. It's a, it's a, oh yeah, it's proven, right? And and you you're right. Him being a, a four genius thinker, he's like, mm, you know what? Why wouldn't I try this? Yeah. Why wouldn't I try? It? If I could make a change in one person's life, it'd be something special. And nobody had ever done what you're about to tell him about. That's right. So he gets with about uh, let's say these six trusted inmates that he had that were they were all graduates of the seminary Mm -hmm. and he says do y'all see the same problem i do and they said not only do we see the problem we we can institute a program where we teach other inmates how to be fathers behind bars it's possible right Right, right. so they form and look i got chill bumps again they form what they call malachi dads and basically, this is one of the the best programs he ever instituted, and it it was a program in which uh, fathers that were incarcerated learned how to parent their kids from inside of prison. We're going to play you a clip real quick, and this is the founder. These are the inmate founders of Malachi Dads, and they're discussing a little bit about Warden Kane and a lot about that program. We're going to play that right now. My name is Ron Hicks, and I've been incarcerated 25 years. I'm serving life sentence for second-degree murder. My name is Daryl Waters. I'm from Gibson, Louisiana. And uh, I was sentenced to second-degree murder in 1992. My name is George Gillum. I am from New Orleans. I am currently serving a life sentence for second-degree murder. We discovered in 2006 that uh, a child of an incarcerated father had a 70% likelihood to come to prison. And so we discovered those statistics and uh, God um, gave us favor and that, that became Malachi Dads. Just because you're locked up in prison, that does not give you the right to not still be a father. Healthy people, people who have a heart that's healed, who have a soul that's whole, they want to help, they want to give back, and that's what we do every day. Why do you think violence has come down? In Angola. When Warren came came on the scene, what he did was open up the door of opportunity. He was able to see if I can get these guys to start coming after success, because what success do, it changed the way you think. If I can achieve something, I feel better about myself. Wow, super. There's so much to be said. Y'all, I'm going to do one more part. That is maybe I don't want to say it shows a harsher side because it's not a harsh side, but it shows business side of Burl. Now he's, a good all, he's all about he's all about um, trying to shine the light in the darkness and and see how it, you know what kind of positive things can come about it. But he's also all about if it's his prison and who's going to rule it, right? Yeah. But the, listen to this story. This is crazy. And Jim uh, researched this, and I had never, believe it or not, I had never even heard of this. But the, as we told you many times on the show, um, Angola is huge, right? It's sprawling over 18,000 acres, and that's mostly, I mean, there's 
the camps are spread out. It's mostly agriculture, big fields, Tunica Hills, Mississippi River. So there's a lot, shit ton of wildlife, right? So one day, uh, uh, one of the convicts saw a huge 400-pound black bear uh, on the property, right? And they freaked <laughs> out. And they're like, holy shit. And, and, and I mean, most of these guys are city boys, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, even they don't, if, like, dog, they don't they, like the wolf dogs. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and it, until two years ago, I had never seen a bear in the state of Louisiana. And But back but in Jackson, where DCI was, the, the first restaurant I worked at was called Bear Corners. Back in the day, black bears were prevalent in an area. And, and now they're coming back because strict hun ban, et cetera. But you got this mass of 18,000 acres, that, and as rare as they are, there was a bear. Yeah. And, and, and they, in and, the middle and, of the prison. Black, right. Massive black bear living in the middle of the of Angola. And you know what Burl thought? <laughs> uh, I can only you know man. what kind of scared me and i know it scared them because they came running to me and he's like you know what? that's just extra security <laughs> right that's exactly he, how he, he said, think he said and i'll quote him he said i love that bear being right where it is and i tell you what none of our inmates are going to try to get out after dark and wander around when they might run into a big old bear it's like having another guard at no cost to the taxpayer <laughs> And Love I mean, that. he was about business. Uh, yeah, we we keep talking about the, all these good things that he's doing. Let me tell you something. I've seen it, and we'll talk about it in later later episodes in the series. I've seen it. That's one dude you don't want to see mad, and it's one dude that knows his business, right? That's so, right. Because anyway, the, the bear was first seen by an inmate crossing the road in the prison, and it was taking a stroll near the center of the prison where about five and a half square miles is mostly untouched piney woods, y'all. And the prison workers measured the bear's footprints, which were six inches in diameter. Now, every inch that they can measure equals 75 pounds. The the biologists have figured this out. So that made that bear about 450 pounds. Uh, um, and Kane said the wildlife people told us they think it's a big female they've been tracking for a while. And Warren Kane estimated at the time that eight to ten bears <laughs> led on, on that eighteen thousand acres. Holy crap! And you better believe he promoted the shit out. Oh of yeah, yeah, I was about to say that. You know, he told every inmate. Right? <laughs> yeah, and when they come in, hey, and if you're out in the field, you see a bear. Uh, you, you ain't yeah. gonna be the fast. You just gotta be fast from one of the other convicts. Now, <laughs> we might not shoot you if you're running from the bear, but if you go out there at night, that bear's hungry. Yeah, bear's got to eat, right? So, y'all, we're just getting started. Yeah, just getting started. But we got to cut so, this one off. The, it's, yeah, it, we've yeah, gone yeah, over an hour. Still, though, the, I'm gonna say it again. Wait until you hear. I mean, you're, we we oh talked a lot we about the, the, the positive side today, which is which, which is something. But I'm gonna tell you something. Tough dude, bro. There's a reason he lasted as long as he lasted and, and is still doing what he does. But it's the the totality of circumstances of the man, which to me makes him a legend. Yeah, and we're gonna give you just just to give you a little a little sauce for what you what you can look forward to the next episode. We're gonna talk about a little bit about Billy Cannon and his how Burl Kane was instrumental in bringing him to Angola. We're going to talk about Hurricane Katrina and the effect yes, that that had on Angola prison. Y'all are going to love that story. Look, these are stuff you cannot find yeah, anywhere and, else. And we're going to talk about some executions. and, and Yeah, and how, how about his how second that, execution right, different right, than the first, and, right? And then, and then what, would, I mean, yeah, what, what happened following after that. Uh, uh, just a whole, whole Captain lot. Naps. Captain David Naps. And, a b- and, bunch more to bring you. And can't wait to bring in and we appreciate love each and every one of y'all and yeah I, thank y'all for patreon members everything you rock right our patreon members the the, uh, the show couldn't run without you we appreciate y'all so much y'all look if you want to be a patron member go to patreon.com slash bloody angola and we've got a bonus episode coming uh, next week right, right so what we're going to do next week when we record uh, uh our second episode of of the story of burl kane we're also going to record our bonus episode just for patron members. Right. And it, what it's going to be on, y'all, is we told y'all, you know, we released the first episode of the general public, but it was on executions. 
uh, and we kind of told a little bit of the story, and it was great. Uh, we've got more for you, but right. it's only going to be for patrons, for patrons that second and, one. And, and, so go join and, it. And, y'all, we have all the different tier levels with all the different benefits. And I'm telling you right now, I've been doing this over five years podcasting, and Real Life my Real Life Real Crime Original probably doesn't have as many patron episodes locked up as, as we got a ton of Bloody there. Angola. That's so right. If you like Bloody Angola, go subscribe. Um, if you can't be a patron member, we love you just as much. Um, and transcripts. People love yeah, the, transcripts. Yeah, the transcripts. We've got, we got all marks. of our episodes yeah. transcribed on Patreon for for some of the tiers. And these are not transcriptions, y'all, that are like uh, uh, the AI versions. Right. This is actually someone sitting someone down typing. Because, you know, our, our southern accents don't cross over yeah, too no, well. Unfortunately. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. And and look, we have merchandise. Yeah. People love the, the shirts. shirts and the uh, hats. And the, uh, and what about the bloody angle of wine? Oh, yeah. If, if Got a little bit of wine in there for you ladies. And, uh, and that's good stuff. Yeah. And I mean, we sold out of it at the live show. So, yeah. The, um, but anyway, y'all, please share us and, and Reviews. like us and leave us a review if you're so inclined. And we appreciate you and love you and wait until you hear what's coming next. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And until... Next time, I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Everton. Your host of Bloody Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Straight line, shackle and chain. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Wrangle the Three.